Huxley basically argued if people would lose their freedom because they were so entertained by screens, by entertainment, uh, by pop culture, that they would voluntarily give up a lot of their personal information and a lot of their agency. There's no doubt that Orwell got everything right, I think, in my opinion, except one thing, perhaps. Government, I don't think that's going to be Big Brother. You know, I think it's going to actually be a combination of Amazon, Google, and Facebook. It's about unlimited access and power. These companies know you better than you know yourself, and they know everything you do and say in private, and they also understand how to manipulate that knowledge. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today I will bring you the second part of the interview I did with Patrick Nevy. And this part will continue on where we left off, and the interview as a whole will conclude with this episode. So I'm just going to jump back in where we left off, and to give you a little bit of context, Patrick had just talked about censorship and how that was at times misunderstood with how the church may have censored things or it might have appeared that they censored things. Patrick also just finished making the point that propaganda and censorship usually happen at the very top or at the very bottom of power. So you have, for example, states that make decisions about what their citizens should or shouldn't see or what they should or shouldn't think and what they will and won't hear. That often happens at the very top. And then at the very bottom, the effect there is that they're the people that buy it. The people at the bottom that are receiving this propaganda and that are being hit with this censorship where they can't access things, they generally will accept that or they will buy it. They will buy into it. And it is their responsibility. It is our responsibility as us at the bottom to be able to discern what is correct and incorrect and what we should and shouldn't be exposed to. So that's what he was just wrapping up with, those ideas. And I will play my response and my following questions and the rest of the interview right now. So with all this going on, you ended up having the church come back with their own response. They had a bit of a reformation themselves. And my impression is they kind of cleaned house and got a little more serious. And so could you tell us a little bit about the counter-reformation and maybe the role of the Jesuit order? Yeah, so the Counter-Reformation is full of one of some of the most badass saints that have ever existed. Um, St. Francis de Sales, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, and St. Ignatius of Loyola. Um, some of the, what, what's beautiful about them is that these, although they were all different um, groups of people, right? Like St. Francis de Sales was a bishop. Um, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila were both uh, cloistered religious. They did not talk to people outside of their religious oh. order, really. And then um, St. Ignatius of Loyola was at first a lay person, but he became celibate and started the Jesuits. Um, These people, they didn't focus on doctrine, which is incredible, you know, because you have all these fights over doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. They said, how about this? How about let's just get really, really close to Jesus. Let's get really, really good at prayer. And then the correct doctrine will come will come second. 
when you put when you put wisdom when you put knowledge in front of wisdom or in front of understanding you've got it backwards right god alone is the source of all truth he's a source of all wisdom of all understanding you can't have these things without him and so if you're not if you're not doing theology on your knees if you're not if you're not putting yourself close to his heart right it's not going to come out correctly um and so these these guys um yeah the so john of the cross was a poet St. Francis de Sales wrote this book called Introduction to the Devout Life, which was written to a woman he was advising on how to become a better better prayer. And then um, St. Ignatius of Loyola, um, I'm actually getting married on his feast day, which is oh. funny. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, he started, oh, thank you. He, uh, he was roommates with a guy named St. Francis Xavier, and uh, St. Francis Xavier ended up like converting India. Oh. Um, they went all over the place, and they were very much like, zealots for souls they wanted people to know christ and he wrote this book called the spiritual exercises that was like basically how to discern what is right and what is wrong and so the counter-reformation similar with what was going on with saint francis and saint um saint dominic 300 years earlier right they didn't they responded to corruption in the church the same corruption that luther was responding to right um they did technically respond to corruption in the church right corruption in in the middle powers and in the lowers um because St. Francis was told by God, rebuild my church. But what he did was he said, okay, cool, I'm going to do that. But I'm going to do it by making myself as much like you as possible. Um, I'm not going to try and think my way out of this one. St. Dominic, he was trying to battle the Albigensians. Um, the Albigensians were a group of heretics that were popular in the 1200s. I forget what they taught. I think they might have taught probably something about the non-divinity of Christ or something stupid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's usually it. Like, well, I don't think Jesus was, you know, we've taught this for two, 12,000 years, 1200 years, but you know what? I don't think Jesus is God anymore. <laughs> um, it's like, that's what Christianity is. You, you, you <laughs> donut. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so he was, he was battling the Albigensians and, um, he prayed the rosary. Our lady Mary appeared to him and gave him the rosary, right? She appeared and she had a sword in her hand and she handed it to him and it became a rosary. And, um, yeah, it's like it's so not human. Our human, our human response to someone uh, dunking on liberals on Twitter is to dunk on the conservatives on Twitter. You know, where our 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 goal is to like the med, like you took my eye out, I'm gonna take out yours. It's like you you hit me this way, I'm gonna hit you this way. The response of the church to heresy has and always been a deep recommitment to prayer. And so if we want to if we want to analogize the crisis of the church and how that was fixed, right? We want to look at the crisis in the church and how that was fixed. That was fixed by a deep devotion to God, devotion to prayer. I mean, I think that's where the analogy ends for the state because it's the same thing, right? Eventually, we got to got to take into consideration the fact that the West has lost its devotion to prayer. It's lost its connection to the spiritual. Modernism inherently denies the fact that mediation exists and because christ's very role in salvation history was the mediator modernism and we're in like post postmodernism now has completely rejected christ because it rejected mediation right and so now i am the arbiter of my own truth not only that is i'm there's no reason for existence outside of me right and so the only antidote to this like layer and layer of post post postmodernism we're in is a deeper devotion to prayer Okay, so 
carrying that modern analogy forward a little bit, I I like what the church did here. They cleaned up their act. They lived out what they were preaching and what they were supposed to be doing. And out of that came a lot of good stuff. They also really focused on education was a big thing I know as well. Yeah. And so if yeah. today, if government officials and all state employees and all these politicians actually had the what's best for the people as their motivating drive and they did everything through that lens and they actually were not corrupt and did not take bribes and did not have uh, any of their allegiances to a foreign power or a corporation or another group, then I I could see that being a successful counter-reformation, if you will, in the modern area of government. I think if we... I think you're totally right. I think if we replace... See, here's what we think is going to happen because of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and because of people like not not exactly um, evolution guy. What's his name? Darwin. Darwin. Not be exactly because of Darwin, but because of some people that followed him. We think what's going to happen if we get rid of mediation, right? We think what's going to happen is we're all going to live in this this utopia. Um, yikes, already dangerous, <laughs> Orwellian. Um, we think we're going to live in this utopia where we can be the arbiters of our own existence. We can all decide what is right for me. And, and as long as you don't, as long as you don't infringe on what someone else wants, you can do whatever you want. As long as it's not infringing on someone else's complete and total freedom. But what happens is, is that when we as a culture deny mediation exists, what ends up happening is we forget God (laughs) and the people in power. And there always will be people in power. I mean, Father to son, that's power already. There's already a power dynamic there. You can't get rid of that. That's human nature. When we when we are in a position of power and we don't believe in mediation, we cease to see ourselves as conduits of God's grace. We don't see ourselves as participating in his authority. And we see ourselves as the source of authority, right? We become absolute absolute dictators. The thing about modernism is we all know absolute power corrupts absolutely, etc. But what modernism did was it made it possible for everyone to be to become absolutely powerful in their own mind, right? Which corrupts absolutely. So if we buy into the modernist project, which is already finished, it it won, right? Yeah. <laughs> if we buy it, we have to like we have to undo the knots a little bit. If we buy into the modernist project, we become corrupt, whether at the bottom, the middle, or the top. It doesn't. I think I think what I think what happened in the past, right? We were like the the kind of like the evil like the kind of the evil one right the devil's like i'm gonna get the top and then i'm gonna get everyone oh no i'm gonna get the middle guys and then i'm gonna get everyone oh, i'm gonna get the people i'm gonna get everyone let's just get everyone all at once let's say we just forget god completely and then when we turn in on ourselves which is the definition of hell right when we turn in on ourselves and away from other people we we become corrupted absolutely yeah yeah so what would be your opinion then on decentralization so the idea that you do have mediation but maybe people think that the state is not the best manager for mediating society. And maybe that should be uh, the role of different decentralized bodies, kind of, I guess, kind of like how maybe we could agree on a main principle for Christianity, that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord and, you know, a few broad things, follow the Ten Commandments kind of a thing, and then have different denominations that take that in different directions and they mediate in different ways, but they're all broadly on that one idea, kind of like in a government example would be 
following, I guess, like the non-aggression principle where as long as you don't initiate harm or force on anybody else, then you're good. And then all of society agrees with this. Then you have many different decentralized bodies that kind of manage that and interpret that. Is that something that you see as realistic or is that something that would just get corrupted just as bad? You say absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you put all of this in the hands of one state monopoly, that seems like guaranteed to be corrupted versus maybe decentralized. You have a better chance at staving that off a little bit. Yeah. Well, now, now, now the problem is we're trying to institutionalize virtue, which is impossible. Um, but let's, I, I would say that not only what you said, um, would be corrupted it did already um dual supremacy was in the constitution right it was all of these technically decentralized right i mean what we first wanted to be was a confederacy in the in america the all of these decentralized powers existed united under main principles the 10 the 10 um, amendments the bill of rights um but that ended up the state i mean the I, I mean, we, we know what happened, right? Like more amendments were added, uh, even though the 10th Amendment, I believe, says that whatever's not enumerated here is specifically delegated to the states. That ended up not happening. We have a national drinking age, for instance, yes. you know, like all these things, all these things, which again, now that I'm now that I'm, you know, not 18 anymore, I'm totally cool with. But, you know, back then I was kind of pissed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think the the answer and I'll, I'll, i'm going to keep coming back to this this is just this is the way i think is the answer is not um organizing some kind of state where people are are you know going to definitely definitely be non-corrupt um there's always going to be corruption this side of heaven um there's always going to be someone who wants to seize power for themselves but the way to prevent the way to prevent them from winning the day is by changing the culture, is by changing, by people saying, oh, well, they obviously don't know Christ the way I do. Because someone someone who someone who prays can sniff out someone in power who doesn't, right? Like someone who knows how to act and how to be virtuous can can easily see when someone isn't virtuous. And it's not, it's not that only Christians are virtuous because the pagans are the ones that enumerated the four cardinal virtues, right? Plato yeah. did. Um, but even 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 then, right? Like we, there's no there's no way of knowing. We can't we can't elect people based on virtue alone because there's no way to know a person that we can't know their hearts, right? Um, I think that I think that America's in trouble because of two two reasons. One, like you said, it's too centralized, too big, right? There's we are just huge. Like what the heck, we're so big. Um, the country is just gigantic, and so we give a, a lot of power to like literally one person. Um, yeah, there's checks and balances, et cetera, but like literally there's not. Cause I mean, there's not, there were, but there aren't anymore. We, I mean, yeah. the president is basically the top dog. It's like, there's checks and balances between the, uh, the U S Supreme court and the legislature, but not, there's no checks and balances against him, I guess. Um, or her. Yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> So, like, I guess America's in trouble because we're so big and also because we've already kind of institutionalized, um, we've institutionalized atheism. Um, not in the sense that, like, it's not in the sense that, like, oh, we finally made it okay to not believe in God. That should have always been okay. You can't be forced to. Um, but we've institutionalized this default, like, we need to default believe that nothing exists above America, which I think is an incredibly insidious thing because now America's the most important thing. And America is the worst when it comes to not being egotistical. 
Um, so we are perhaps the worst nation on earth to forget about God because we're already historically an isolationist nation. We don't like going outside of ourselves unless someone's got oil. And so it, <laughs> I think we are perhaps the worst nation on earth to forget that, that God is, God needs to be, um, supreme. And then we're also in trouble because we keep saying God's name all the time. So we think that we were built on Christian principles. And even if that was the case, we aren't really anymore. Um, so the solution, I guess, is to kind of philosophically work our way backwards, right? What happened was we started with modernism where we said, hey, we can be fine without God. This is in the 1800s. We said, we can be fine without God. Um, we'll just, we'll just do what like, you know, we'll just do what Carl Sagan and what I think that's, yeah, yeah. Carl Sagan. we'll just do what they, we'll just do what he said. And we'll just be like really into looking up, looking for, you know, truth in nature, right? Scientific naturalism. But then when you realize there's nothing outside of nature and the, once you realize if, if you think that, hey, all there is is what is in front of me and you'll never know everything that's there. If that's the your purpose for existence, you're going to be really, really sad. You're going to eventually turn in on yourself and you're going to become, you're going to become nihilistic. But no human person can exist like that. Nietzsche, Nietzsche proved this. He's the only true, authentic nihilist who ever existed. God is dead and we killed him and then he goes insane. Um, so we've swung up into, um, postmodernism or existentialism where, okay, uh, if there's no meaning outside of myself and not having any meaning is too much, then I'm going to be the arbiter of my own existence. I'm going to decide what my meaning is. Um, and so this kind of like pendulum swing or slippery slope or however we want to put it, we kind of need to get back up. We kind of need to say, okay, I'm not the arbiter of my own existence and there is existence outside of me swing back through, you know, the existence is not meaningless right and then swing up to there is meaning outside of me because i've been created by someone by someone intelligent um by god and i think we've proven that it's okay and possible to at least be deists right or theists you know believe in a supreme god who created everyone who has these basic principles um that were revealed you yeah. know um i obviously I think and will go to death to defend that Jesus Christ, like the Holy Trinity, is that God. Um, but we all need to agree that there is something outside of us or we will go insane and this corruption won't end. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, so I hope I've successfully converted all of your listeners <laughs> at this point. I know that's we'll see. not the point. We'll but see. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of views here. I've got one guy that I believe is an atheist, one guy that's a Protestant theologian professor. I've got you on the Catholic side. So hopefully yeah. I give everybody enough information they can make up their own minds. Yeah, exactly. And they can they can find me on Twitter if they want to fight me. There we me, go. You know? Yeah. So um, going along with that, uh, my parallel that I've been bringing out is that Politics today is playing the same role that religion played in the past. So historically, all society basically believed that there was a god. That was something that everybody pretty much believed, yeah. or there were gods, and depending on how ba far back you go. But within Christendom, at least, you had people believing that there was this one god, the Hebrew god, that is related to the Hebrew Bible, and you had Jesus Christ that came along, and pretty much everybody agreed with that although they had many different interpretations of a lot of the different things that are within that text and that were taught. But everybody pretty much yeah. believed there was God. And so therefore, they viewed everything, their education, their lives, their family relationships, 
through this lens of theology. It's what does the Bible say about this? What am I supposed to do according to God? Whereas today, as you mentioned, we are definitely not a Christian nation in a pure sense, at least. And so that's not really a view that most people have nowadays. Nowadays, people generally have this political lens that they see everything through. They are either this right conservative and they see everything through that lens, or they're a left liberal seeing everything through that lens, or they're a social justice warrior and they're seeing everything through those lenses, but it's all political. (laughs) Um, Do you have any views as well about that kind of difference between how religion operated then and how politics operates now? Yeah, I think back then it was better. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I I think that this is this is something that a lot of Catholics fall into. It's like medievalist idealism um, that in the medieval when when there was a Christendom, everything was better, which is not true. Um, not it's not necessarily true. There were a lot of things that were good, right? In terms of in terms of culture, right? There was um, religious festivals and there was more community. And but I mean, you can say that about the 1950s. Yeah. You know, um, I think I think that you're spot on when it comes. And I mean, my friends and I say this all the time is that the state has replaced God. Uh, and I think that that is bad. I, I don't think if you put it like that, well, here, let's put it this way. Um, that's, I think that's Trotsky, right? Or no, it's Lenin. The state is God and God is the yeah. state. I mean, we should, as as red-blooded, not red Americans, we should all believe that, you know, God is not the state and the state is not God. But this is, this is a, this is where we are in a, in a modern postmodern uh, world. Um, I forgot your question. <laughs> Just the relationship <laughs> between people viewing things through a political lens versus how they used to look through a theological lens. Yeah, if you see the world spiritually, you're going to treat it differently. The universal healthcare, um, universal education, right? All of these things, they wouldn't, and some of them haven't. They all actually, you know what? They haven't come into existence fully in a in a in a post-Christian state, right? Um, the reason why hospitals, so the church invented the university, the church invented the hospital. Um, university is named after the church. Catholic means universal. Um, these things came into being because of a Christian desire to educate and to heal, right? Because, because we know, we understand as Catholics that the human body is important. This world we live in is important. Um, we wouldn't need conservationist movements if people treated the world as a spiritual entity, right? If we understood that God created it and we are stewards of it, right? Um, viewing things through a political lens means the only thing that matters is if you get political power out of it. So honestly, I don't believe that people in the legislature, pro-choice or pro-life, care about the unborn or about women. It's just if this, if I believe this thing, which is why you have, like the Catholic Church is very pro-life, but this is why you have, Catholic Democrats who aren't pro-life, right? It's because when you view the state as God, you will do what you can to get that power, right? But it's a it's it's not it's human nature. When we know that God is God, we want a piece of Him, right? We want all of Him, and that's hum- That's so that's such a good thing. That's not something that should be shamed. But when we believe the state is God, we want a piece of God. We want all of Him, and we should not have all of the state. That's a that's a very human in a bad way. You know, that's very human in a bad way. Nothing can fill the God-shaped hole in your heart, but we're trying to fill it with politics. We're trying to fill it with, you know, we're trying to fill it with, instead of, instead of daily, instead of daily morning prayer, it's daily morning tweeting. Or a daily pledge Um, every morning in school. (laughs) 
Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I pledge allegiance to this fabric. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, where yes, were we? Yes. Um, we were going back to politics and theology, and I think we wrapped that one up pretty well. Um, so moving on from that, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is the impact that you see today from the Reformation. I know you've mentioned to me that you feel like the Reformation has had this gigantic impact on society as a whole that we can still see to this day. Can you talk a little bit about some of those things? America would not exist without the Reformation. Um, because the Reformation and like the, the ideals of the Reformation began in the Renaissance. Like the history is never, when you're in elementary school, you learn about history as isolated little episodes but everything leads into one another, right? Yep. Um, but the Reformation in the 1500s began this domino effect of revolution, right? You have the Reformation and then all the other Reformations. <laughs> um, you have the English Revolution, then the French Revolution, then the Industrial Revolution. The American Revolution is actually a little bit before that, I forgot. But you have all these different revolutions, right? The Enlightenment, which is an intellectual revolution. Um, it started in a truly like a half century of revolutions, but eventually, these revolutions got a little more uh, not revolutionary and got a little more murdery. Yeah. Right. Um, it the Industrial Revolution directly brought about World War One. Right. Otto von Bismarck is like, hey, I got these awesome guns now. Let's try them out on eighteen-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> um, and then without without the uh, without without modernism, right, we wouldn't have Nietzsche and we wouldn't have Hitler, right. And so, um, and without World War One, we wouldn't have Hitler. True. But yeah, so like we have. We have all, it all comes at, it reducts you at Hitler, I'm right? That's the, that, you make someone sound really bad by comparing them to Hitler. <laughs> um, that's not what I'm trying to do, but I'm just saying. So I think, I think the, uh, it's all about the Germans, man. Here we're back with Luther, yeah. right? <laughs> all these freaking Germans. Um, so yeah, the, the Reformation did have this gigantic impact on, um, on culture because it hit the West so hard because it did what, it, it did what everyone was yearning so deeply to do was to, um, determine for themselves what was right. And this is a, the human conscience is a good thing, right? We do have this right to decide what is right and what is wrong on a certain level, right? But in another sense, we don't have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong on like a grand scale, right? But the Reformation did theologically um, what people weren't willing to do intellectually at first, because if you started saying, I can do what I want, people would be able to point to to the church and be like, well, no, we, we can't, right? Like we can't even do that spiritually. Why should we do this? Because, because the state and, and religion were so tied because everything in religion was so tied because everything was so spiritual going against, um, going against the certain, uh, these certain like social norms was going against the church. And so then all that need, all that needed to happen was a rupture of the church so that the rupture of the social order could come into play. So this brought about the the enlightenment. It's like, well, if we don't need the church, if we don't need the institutional church, then we definitely don't, then maybe we don't need God. Right. And then if we don't need God, well, then all we have is, is science and et cetera, nihilism, postmodernism, existentialism, um, et cetera. So I said that I, 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 you can, you can draw this all back to the reformation where we are now in a post-Christian society was brought about by the reformation. And that's hard to say, Right. Because as a Catholic, it sounds like I'm saying you guys did this. It was all your fault. But it's not what's happening. I'm just saying like just just, you know, sociologically speaking and theologically speaking, once you divorced um, God from the church, people started doing whating whatever they wanted. And it just people kept splitting and splitting. Once you make splitting okay, 
then, you know, if Luther splits from the church and then someone says, I disagree with you on this, I'm going to start my own church now. And he goes, wait, no, don't. He, he doesn't have a leg to stand on, right? So, well, you split from the church, so why can't I? And so you keep going and going and going. And now we have to reconstruct Christian theology, right? I talk to pastors about this, to, to Protestant pastors about this all the time. We have to reconstruct Christian theology of what is the church, right? The church is um, a bunch of different non-associated, non-communicating organizations that all work together. That's not what a body looks like. Nope. How can we call the church one body, you know? Um, so the, so this, this fracturing of Christian Christendom led to the downfall of the moral backbone of the West. Um, and again, I don't want to say I'm not a medieval idealist. (laughs) I'm saying that the, the moral backbone of the West was important. And I think that if we had been a Christian nation from the beginning, right, I think this would have been different. Um, not all the founding fathers were Christians. They were all Freemasons and the Freemasons hate Catholics. True. Yep. (laughs) So with that, I want to wrap this up with one last aspect, and that would be that, in my opinion, we are in the middle of what I might call a digital reformation, where we didn't get into the printing press. Oh, I love that. thank you. Oh, that's so... Sorry, I'm going to steal that. That's so good. I'm going to credit you, though. Don't worry about it. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. I I think I came up with it. I don't know, though. It could have been around. Who knows? But we didn't get into the printing press, but the printing press did have a huge role to play in all this, and I've talked about it in other episodes, but... With today, you have the internet and you have this individualized access to information, just like people could individually start accessing scripture. They're becoming more literate. They could read it on their own. They began interpreting it on their own. Today, we all have access directly to information and we can interpret that on our own. We don't need these mediators of the news and different media outlets that we already know are corrupt in many different ways. And it's the same with government. We don't need the state. We are largely breaking away from the state in many ways, but that's kind of at its infancy. We have this information decentralization and individuality that is happening now. And it seems like things are coming to a head where you have these anti-establishment movements that are coming up. Um, Definitely in the US, you have Bernie Sanders on one side and Ron Paul on the other. They're they're both very (laughs) anti-establishment and Ralph Nader before them. And you look overseas, you have Brexit. You look in the Middle East, you have all these revolutions and political uprisings. Same with South America. It's all over the world. We have these movements, these anti-establishment movements, largely due to them seeing the institutions as completely corrupt. And they see that they don't need these institutions anymore. We can do some of this stuff on our own. We have a corporation maybe that we can buy an insurance plan through. Why do we need the state for that? I can invest in my own retirement. Why do I need to rely on the state for Social Security? I don't even know if that money's still going to be there. Plus, you're corrupt and you're just using it to... Spoiler alert. It's not. It's not going to be. And so the idea is that the government is basically taking our money and bombing innocent civilians overseas. And like recently, we killed a few Iraqi policemen and a few civilians and... Basically, nothing was said about that because we took out two terrorists. But yeah. when they bomb one of our buildings or send a rocket over, and it's arguable as to whether that was Iran or not, but when that happens and one contractor gets killed, all of a sudden it's this big deal. You know, we're not the bad guys, they yeah. are the bad guys. And so when that's how our yeah. money is being spent to murder people overseas, 
a lot of people have an issue with those types of things. And so, again, I believe we are in some stage and uh, the different parallels don't play out exactly the same as far as a timeline is concerned. But I do see yeah. we are somewhere in the timeline of each one of these historical movements. And I can have a parallel with modern movements today. How do you view that? Do you think we are moving towards some sort of reformation, some sort of movement that's going to change the overall structure of society in a big way like the Reformation did? Do you think that? Or do you think this will be more like, let's say, the Anabaptists or the movements of the 60s and (laughs) 70s where you had these kind of anti-establishment movements and they had these ideals and these ideas And it made a lot of sense. It was logical, and they had a lot to back it up, but it didn't really go anywhere. What do you think? Do you think these movements are going to go somewhere, or do you think they're going to be (laughs) co-opted by the state? Um, My my cousin is um, a very a very smart uh, politically politically scientifically philosophically minded individual. So I would like to quote him: Um, "Something happened when they shot that gorilla." Huh. Um, Harambe, <laughs> some yes, Harambe, yeah. So he's like something happened when something something cosmic happened when they shot that gorilla. <laughs> um, it's it was like this. It's just not. It's not the first time. It's not going to be the last. But it's this like it, this kind of culmination of right, like looking at the news and saying this is not. I don't need this, right? Looking at the fourth branch of government and going shut shut up wait shut up this is done. like you said social media allowed this curation of 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 what of what you see right and and so now i can i can only i only get to see i only have to see what i want i can block anyone i want i can block the president of the united states and never have to hear what he says right um i can block cnn and only watch fox news i can right like we've always had this we've always had this kind of um uh ability to not watch different media channels but when there was only three news channels on right they didn't have really an incentive to be as biased as they do now but also you got to watch all three and you got a bunch of different sides but now it's kind of the opposite where because there's this like because there's individual determinism of information i think i think a a digital reformation has already happened and it just it culminated into we now are so divided. We're not even talking about the same things anymore. Um, what I, what the reason why I said the gorilla thing was because, um, Harambe won 1% of the vote in the 2016 election, which is (laughs) nonsense. Right. But it's because, I mean, what's 1% of 300 million. That's a lot of people, but that's the thing. Not, not 300 million people voted. Right. So it's like, there's so many people, a, a good portion of the voting population decided to vote for the same amount of people that voted for Gary Johnson, yeah. which is weird to Very me. Very weird. <laughs> right? Like for a gorilla. And and it's because it's because like these new, that, that news story became such a meme and it's like, why are they even reporting? Like what this, this, it just blew out of proportion to the point where we were like, oh wow, news isn't real anymore. And I think that's where fake news started coming in. It's not necessarily the fact that like, the news is reporting things that are wrong. I do think most people think that that's what fake news means. I think people use it that way. But I think to me, fake news is like, this is not really news. This is just the 24-hour cycle repeating itself over and over again. And so the digital reformation was an informational reformation against um, against the normal 
mediators of information. There's always going to be a mediator. That's the thing. We we can't get ourselves anything. That's just not how it works. You have a mediator from the first... You have a mediator when you're brought into this world, you know, your mother. Yeah. And then you learn how to talk from her. And then you learn chemistry from Miss whatever her name is. I don't like my chemistry teacher. You learn chemistry from someone, right? Like you have you have a mediator for everything. But now because of the internet, we have, it's a little bit of a myth and a little bit of a reality, right? We have this myth, like we have everything we could ever want to learn out there for us. I could, I could become an engineer on the internet. I could play Kerbal Space Planet, Kerbal Space Program for like a year and be a great rocket engineer. I could work for NASA, but do you, you know, do we? I don't, I don't, I, I found, I found a, a learn ancient Greek for free course on the internet. And that's like something that I'm interested in. And I could use that and I could go to master's. I could go to, I could go to graduate school and test out of Greek and save hundreds of dollars for free. But do I? No, of course not. Because in addition to, um, because we have this myth, the, the, the revolution, revolution is not absolute. Revolution is when a bunch of people decide to, they, a bunch of people delude themselves into thinking they have control. So like the reformation, he was fooling himself in thinking that he had control over theology. He didn't. God does, right? Um, in the French Revolution, you know, it was a bunch of the citizenry thinking that they had control over where their state went. They didn't. Robespierre did, right? Like, it's a bunch of people fooling themselves and thinking they have control. We fool ourselves when we use Twitter and Facebook. We're like, oh, we totally have control over what we can see. We don't. We don't. We don't have the algorithm. Zuck does, you know? We don't have the algorithm. Jack does. YouTube, we don't have the algorithm we do not get to choose what we see. So it's this, it, the digital, the digital reformation is in my perspective, just based on this last five minute ramble train of thought. I think what it comes down to is we think that we have control over our information and we are making decisions based off of that information, but people are controlling what information we see. Yeah, definitely. I, the way I look at it is that we see the state kind of losing their reputation, losing the trust and faith that people are putting in it. They are losing some of their power. Yeah. And we have corporations that are kind of stepping up and filling that role. Like you said, they are filtering the content you see. It's Facebook. It's Google. Uh, largely, it's big tech. But you have corporations as a whole, these large, massive international corporations that are basically financing most political campaigns as well. They have yeah. <laughs> they have gotten more and more power. And so my parallel with that is that historically you had the nobility that had power over small regions. And as the church ended up losing their power and things were breaking apart, they're fighting with the Protestants and figuring things out for how the things were going to go. The nobility kind of stepped up and filled that role. They centralized themselves yeah. and you had the creation of the nation state. And so I, I believe that something similar will happen where we'll have these anti-establishment movements will come to a head, something will go down, the state will continue to lose power, and probably corporations will maybe step in to fill that gap in some areas. So we'll see. Um, yeah. You never know what will happen, and I think I largely uh, agree with you on most of that. That's a book topic, oh, man. Yeah. That's a really... Have you, read, have you read Amusing Ourselves to Death? I have not. Neil Postman. It's like a classic. I'm, I just bought it. A friend of mine recommended it. It's about like the, he, he, it was written in 1985 and it was a prediction of what television is going to do. And it was spot on. Okay. The book starts off with, um, 
the book starts off with him uh, talking about how everyone in 1984 was like breathing a sigh of relief because Orwell wasn't right. But he says, but Aldous Huxley was. Um, Orwell believed that we were going to be destroyed by the things we hate the most. But Huxley knew in Brave New World that we were going to be destroyed by the things we love the most. And that is security. That is safety. That is uh, ease. Right. It's Wally. You know, we're going to be killed eventually by, by convenience. And so we're being murdered by, he, he said back then we're being, we're being killed by, by amusement. Now we're being killed by information. Um, so that's where that is the perfect place to end this episode. I think you have summed everything up very well. So thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate your views and I will definitely refer people to you if they have any complaints about Catholic theology. Yeah. Thanks. And, um, They'll come straight to you for that. Yeah, that's fine. So you can you can find me uh, on Twitter at Catholic Pat. That is the uh, perfect place to have opinions. Um, you can also, if you want to hear me not just ramble about theology and philosophy and political science, you can listen to my podcast where I'm a lot funnier. Um, it's called The Crunch. It's a spirituality and comedy podcast. It's the only comedy podcast that gets to go to heaven. Ooh. And uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's run by me and my buddy Ethan. So... You can find me. Um, you can find me online, the Crunch. That's my podcast, or on Twitter at Catholic Pat. Everything else I do, patnevy.com. That's where I'm okay, at. Okay, great. Well, I'll include those in the show notes. So if anybody wants to look for those, they'll be there. And thanks again for coming on. Absolutely, Josh. Appreciate it. So that concludes my interview with Patrick. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And I think it is very beneficial for us to get the Catholic perspective on a lot of these events, since for the most part, we will be referencing things from a Reformation standpoint, from a Reformed perspective. And so it's good to see the other side, see what types of things we might not have thought of or what may have been misrepresented to us in some way. And so I hope this provided that, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Please come back next time as we move out of the theology aspects and the religious aspects, at least broadly. It's the Reformation, so they're going to be there. But in general, we are going to move more into history. So the next guest is the host of the History of the Papacy podcast. So as you can guess, we will be talking about the church, and so we will be talking about religion to an extent, but more the institutional church and historically what they did and what their role was. And then we'll also get into many other aspects. This will be released under this feed, the Our Foundations podcast feed, as well as the History of the Papacy podcast feed. So I may be doing a little more talking than usual, and it's going to be a little more broad. We're going to get into a lot more stuff. We're going to talk about the future and a little bit about things like technocracy and some things that I find very interesting. So hopefully that's something that you enjoy as well. So with that, Please see the show notes for information about today's guest, Patrick, and different ways that you can look at things he's involved with or get in contact with him, as well as links that are there about this podcast. There is the email address, the website, the Patreon page, the Twitter account, and who knows what else. So you can check that out in the show notes. Please do so. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for spreading the word about this podcast and the things that are discussed here. And thank you especially to 
the patrons. Thank you for my number one and first patron, Bradley. Thank you very much. You have been around for a long time, and recently his credit card actually expired, and I wondered if he was dropping, but sure enough, he renewed it. He's back again, and so I want to give an extra thank you to you for that and to all my patrons that are supporting this podcast. That's how I can get any new equipment. That's how I pay for my hosting fees. And currently, that is what is supported right now is mainly just my hosting fees. But that is very helpful, very beneficial. I greatly appreciate that. And if anybody else wants to do that, or if you want to donate by giving cryptocurrency, I've got crypto addresses in the show notes as well for Bitcoin and PIVX and Monero and Litecoin and all kinds of stuff. So if you do, just remember to contact me when you do. That way I can make sure you get any perks that are associated with being a supporter. Please also leave a rating or a review if you have not done that yet. That is also extremely helpful and I greatly appreciate those who have done that as well. So with that, I am out of here. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.